Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you? I'm doing, again, as well as can be, and as good as can be. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> First of all, welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yes, welcome. It's great to be here. Please tell us all about our guest today. It's even greater to be here today because we have a special guest. We have Brown Mark, who is the basis for the revolution, Prince's Band, and he was in the revolution from controversy to around the world in a day. And he is the author of the upcoming memoir, My Life in the Purple Kingdom. Welcome, Brown Mark. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I, I just want to make one correction. It was to a parade. I, I made it all the way to the parade home. So. Oh, <laughs> awesome. okay. So from yeah. controversy to, to parade. parade. Yeah. Which I knew that I because I read the book. Yeah. <laughs> and because we read the book, we understand why Parade was the last album. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. So this book covers your childhood up to pretty much the Parade and into getting signed by Motown in the, the late 80s. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. You grew yeah. up in Minneapolis. I grew up in Minneapolis, born in Bronx, New York, and my mother moved me to Minneapolis for fear, you know, trouble in the streets and what have you. So she wanted to raise me in a little more, um, you know, a community that had a little less crime so, <laughs> at the time, yeah. It seems like, judging from the book, but in Minneapolis, you still encountered uh, many, many yeah. issues. Yeah, yeah. No, you found trouble. Yeah, either, well, there's trouble everywhere. You know, the, the difference with Minneapolis, it was more, um, Minneapolis was more advanced. Uh, it was very um, conservative, very, uh, not conservative, more liberal and very open to a lot of changes that were happening. And, uh, you know, you didn't find the gangs, you know, so the gang life wasn't that prevalent when I was a kid in Minneapolis. And so I think, according to her, that was, you know, one of the reasons she wanted us to move away from New York was because a lot of the gang stuff that was starting to surface. So she kind of ran from that. Good foresight. Yeah. Apparently, the, the toughest person you ran into was your, your mother. You have a nice nickname for her. Yeah. 
Mama Vader. <laughs> she was a mean one. <laughs> I love her to death, but hey, Mama was mean, you know, but mean for a good reason. So. Yeah, you don't portray her as mean, mean in the book, just strict and, you know, wanted to raise you the right way. She was strict. She was strict. I mean, believe me, when I say she was mean, it's a, a term of endearment, you know. It's like she was a rough and tough man. She was a drill sergeant, you know. She didn't play no games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably led to your work ethic. As it, it seems like in high school, you were constantly kept busy. You had something going on practically 24 hours a day. Absolutely. Well, she kind of, you know, my mother worked two, three jobs, depending on the time period, and uh, uh, just trying to, you know, keep us afloat. My father, he was, you know, I don't like to talk about him. You know, he, he passed away, but me and him bonded in the end of his life. But when I, when we, when we were growing up, he was never there, never. And so, you know, I don't like to call him a deadbeat, but that's what it was. So I had to grow. That was hard for me growing up in that time period. So my mother was the mom and the dad. And so she, that's where a lot of the toughness came in dealing with boys, me and my brother. Yeah, she had to compensate. That's a, that's a yeah. hard job. You portray her, at least our perception is, my perception, you portray her in a positive light for all, however strict she was. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. She seemed like a great influence. And yeah. you said hard worker, Dave, but that was the dedication to music. You said you were not a great student. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a great student because of a lot of the civil and social unrest that existed in my environment you know when the busing started it, it was it was uh very difficult for me in high school because now suddenly you know I was in central high which was the urban school and it was my first year in however the busing started so all the suburban kids were coming to central and a lot of my friends were shipped to other schools and then I find myself in an environment that I'm not aware of, that I'm not used to, especially with the teachers, because a lot of people don't realize kids in suburbia got better education. You know, when I hear people fight that, you know, and say, no, that's not true. Well, you know, I'll tell you firsthand it was true. I was there, you know, and I remember I used to have to fight uh, like in math. I'm good at math, but I used to have to fight the teacher because the kids from the suburbs were they were way ahead of us. And so these teachers come in from the suburbs and then they're teaching us at that pace. And we're like, wait a minute, we didn't learn that yet. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And so uh, we had a lot of problems like that in school. And instead of listening, it was, you're disrupting my class, get out of my class, you know, go to the principal's office. So school is rough for me. So that that's why... I say I was, uh, I, you know, I had uh, trouble oh. learning in school. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a mental deficiency. <laughs> no, I only thought it was that you didn't, you know, that you were more into music and, and other things than, than like, the actual yeah. learning, but I get it now. That was the outlet. That's kind of what I ran to. That was the, um, that was like the security blanket. It helped me to cope with all the other stuff that was going on. Yeah, early in your book, you say it, it just felt normal to be treated with hate by hateful people. Absolutely. I mean, that stood out immediately when I read that. And I don't think that's a normal way to live a life. <laughs> yeah. But how adaptable were you to 
to your situation and and was that necessary or I, I, to survive, I guess. Is that- it was absolutely necessary. And the, my mother played a key role in that because um, for a kid growing up, I mean, I could have gone militant. I could have gone to the, the streets and, and, you know, learned it a different way. But my mother, she would sit me down all the time. She wouldn't just let me watch the marches and the rioting and all that. She would talk to me about it. And so that's the big difference. She would educate me on what is actually happening and why it's happening. So as I was growing up, I was able to adapt to the situation, not blame people, but understand people, you know, and that, that's why I was able to adapt and maneuver uh, in the environment I was in. What a huge influence. And so, so then when you started, well, we want to get to, you know, you're getting into music, but I have some questions about that because there are some big differences between Minneapolis and some of the other cities that you started traveling to once you started yeah. touring, which yeah. I know we'll get to. I think as you, you were 19 when you started playing for the revolution yeah. or with the revolution, did you know at the time we read the story about how you were, uh, you know, plucked out by Prince, mm-hmm. but did you know at the time that you were being vetted for his band? Because you seem surprised in the book. I, I mean, I, I was and I wasn't. I knew he was watching us, but I didn't really know why. I mean, Andre Simone, you know, he was telling me, you know, he wanted me to play for him. So, I, you know, I knew my, Andre Simone was going to come out with an album. And I thought that's where I was going to end up. So with Prince, he was always coming to watch my band. And I thought maybe he's looking at the band, mm-hmm. you know, that wants the producers or something. Cause that's when the time had the album, uh, get it up. They had that single out and they were starting to rise. And so I, so I didn't really know. That's why I was surprised. But then I wasn't because I knew he was watching us, but yeah, just didn't know <laughs> me he was watching, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in that what you talked about in the book is that you were trying, you were in a band already, uh, fantasy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you were trying to lean your band in kind of the direction that Prince was trying to take his band in, in a more commercial way. Holly and I both have uh, radio background. So we're always interested in, uh, like you mentioned, 1570 AM, KUXL. What, <laughs> what can you tell me about that station? Uh, growing well, up? I mean, just, you know, when you grew up in Minneapolis, the only black station was KUXL. Okay. That was it. And it was sun powered, solar powered. <laughs> So, you know, when that sun went down, I used to say bye-bye. It just started getting staticky, and then it just disappeared. And um, But that was my only connection to black music other than the record stores. I think believe it was uh, uh, King Records or what was it? Uh, well, anyways, uh, uh, where, where the barbershop was, right next door, there was a record store I used to always go to. And so that was our only connection. Every Friday, we would hit the record stores to find out what's new, what's out, who's out, and so me and my sister had a huge record collection, you know, but as far as the radio, our influences were, you know, God, Peter Frampton and, you know, yeah. Fleet Mac. And, you know, I mean, uh, that that's, you know, Led Zeppelin. I mean, that's just what I grew up with listening to every day. And then, you know, my, my connection to the black community was through my records with James Brown. You know, you had your, wow, you know, uh, Sly and the Family Stone and, uh, Janis Joplin and you know so so the more of the funky more edgier type music that was more soulful you know I had to really search for through uh, more like uh, the record stores where some of your more mainstream stuff was usually country rock or 
as they called it back then, modern rock or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so that I, I have a, a pretty mixed background between the two genres of music. And I think that's where a lot of our styles came yeah. from. Minnesotans, you know, you know, Prince had that rock background. I had that rock background, but yet I like funk. And so my my band fantasy was more from a funk background where I was trying to incorporate the pop rock type thing into it. And then when I formed the group Maserati a year later after I joined Prince, you know, it was rock funk. So that was like my choice to live vicariously through them since <laughs> I'm going to be with Prince now. So kind of a strange story, but that's how I put it together. You know, <laughs> the mind of a 19 year old. Well, I guess that was like the record store was where you hung out with your high school friends before you can get into clubs. Is that, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Did you ever go, you mentioned this uh, Uncle Sam's, uh, which turned into First Avenue. Is that, yeah. was that the first club that you, did you get to go to Uncle Sam's? Were you? Yeah, that was the first, you know, I, I, I don't like saying, you know, white club, black, you know, but that's what it was. So I had to call it what it was. And, but it was the first, you know, white club that I was able to get in. And uh, drinking age was a lot different back then. So I didn't have the problem with, you know, not being old enough, but when I got in there, you know, my skin color definitely became a problem because I was profiled instantly. You know, I'm, I'm in amazement standing up against the wall, but I get thrown out because they said I'm harassing women. How I old were you at the time? Gosh, I had to be 17. I had to be 16, 17. I look much older, so I never had too much problems getting in places, but I just remember... I didn't do anything, but I was watching because I was amazed at how different it was compared to what I was used to. I mean, I'm talking about these little hole in the walls where, you know, it's about as big as my living room and you got 125 people packed in there and they're partying and drinking and you got a live band on the stage. I mean, that's what I'm used to. Is it there now? Is it still there? Are you, well, I know first, you're not in Minneapolis first anymore. Yeah. yeah, First Avenue's still there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but everybody's struggling now with the corona yeah. shutdown. Yeah, there's there's no there's no business. So yeah, yeah and that scene you're describing is probably never going to happen again. Oh, well, hopefully it will. But yeah, we never know. And, and it's like uh, you know, I know the owners, so it's like you know they're having a rough time down there. Yeah, we're hopeful for the music. I just mean squishing all those people into one place again. Exactly. We don't know. Yeah. Okay, so talking with Brown Mark, the author of My Life in the Purple Kingdom, we are going to be right back. But for now, let's just take a short break. I'm Christy. And this is Josh. And we are the Mountains and the Sea. It's a podcast about Prince and his vast musical output. We look at each and every Prince album. And ancillary material like fashion, videos, related artists, B-sides, remixes, outtakes. We choose a high, the mountain, a low, the sea, and a time capsule. Yeah, those are her dumb rules, not mine. Josh is a Prince superfan and has been since long before I met him. That's right, and I pulled Christy over to the purple side with my wit and my charm. The music helped. <laughs> Join us every other week, anywhere you get your podcasts, and happy purple listening, friends. And we're back with Brown Mark on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Well, let's start where, okay, so Prince finds you. <laughs> 
like like uh, like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He's he's watching <laughs> you. He's checking you yeah. out. He's like That's about it. <laughs> and he had already, as you mentioned, you have a, this rehearsal, but in his he had already hired you in his mind. Is that yeah. uh, he knew? Yeah. But you still had a lot of lessons to learn once you once oh, you joined. a lot of lessons. <laughs> yeah. He he knew what he wanted, and he brought me out to audition, which wasn't really an audition. I mean, last maybe fifteen minutes tops, and I was like, he had me learn three albums, you know. And, and, <laughs> you know, we're, we're like on the song for sixty seconds. He's like, okay, that's good. Let's let's you know this, and I'm like, yeah. And so we're jamming on it for sixteen, you know, sixty seconds, and then we're moving on. And so you know, ten fifteen minutes later, he's you know looks at Bobby and says, I'll take him home. I'm like, what do you mean you'll take me home? I don't even know you, dude. (laughs) So it was a really weird moment, but he already knew what he was doing. So that was just a formality. Did you ever have a conversation with him about what it was that made him know? Obviously, it was your playing, your presence, but did you ever have a conversation about it? How did he know at that time? I don't know. I never asked him. Mm -hmm. That's something I just never did. but. My friend, Sonny Thompson, who later ended up playing for MPG, I thought he should have had the job. That was one of the <laughs> baddest bass players in Minnesota, you know? And so I was like, wow, I didn't, how come you didn't get it? What am I doing out here? So I was, I was a bit baffled, but my, you know, my conclusion on the matter was it has to be because I was so young. And very humble. I mean, because I was the kind, you know, my mother raised me that way. And so if I'm going to be your soldier, I'm going to be a soldier. And it's yes, sir. You know, and so he knew I was moldable. And I think he figured that out very quickly. Oh, I can mold this guy. I can kind of, you know, make him out of this thing that I want him to become. And so that that's what it was about, I think. Well, he molded you, I guess, a, a little too well, considering then he, he, he started to feel you were, you know, a rival to him. He didn't, re- he didn't realize what he was creating. <laughs> yeah. like he was cre- creating the, a taller version of himself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> could be the problem. It became very aggressive as time went on. Yeah. But he did teach you. I mean, initially, as you talk in the book, you were – gingerly on the bass and that is not something that he wanted in his band and so so what was your approach to what was his approach to bass playing and how did you adjust to this um you know he never picked up the bass and showed me his approach I didn't even know he could play bass at the time I mean I knew he was (laughs) he could play bass but I didn't know he played as well as he did but for him it was just I think not even so much my aggression towards bass playing that he was trying to pull out of me. But I think what he was really trying to do is break me. It's almost like a POW when he's captured, you know, the the first thing they do is they break you, you know, they break you in the submission. They, they strip, they strip away everything that you are and everything that you know, they take it away from you and, and strip your identity. They try to take it all. And once they break you, then they can like now start with their propaganda or whatever. They can start to reprogram your mind. I think that is really what his plan was with me, to break me. Um, and he broke me down pretty good, but I was a little smarter than that because he didn't realize old Mama Vader was in the background, you know, <laughs> marching me through the whole thing. 
who was a little smarter, you know, a little older, a little more wisdom. And uh, so she guided me through a lot of that. And a lot of people questioned me like, well, man, if he would have put his hands on me, I would have beat the blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hey, don't think I didn't think about it. But, you know, I got mom, you know, in my ear. And I'm remembering everything that she talked to me about. It's like, you know, one in a lifetime shot and ride that wave. And, you know, just those little pointers she put in my ear, they stuck with me. You know? she, so she was your superpower. <laughs> that, she was, yes, yes, exactly. She was yeah. my Spider-Man suit, you know. <laughs> And, and so every time I got knocked around, I realized, okay, there's, there's something behind this. So my task was to figure out what was causing it. You don't just bring somebody in your group and hunt them down like that, bring them into your band just to bully them around. There's something more to this. And once I started to figure out what it was, um, that he was just trying to reprogram me because he wanted me to think and play like him. And then I started really listening to him a lot closer listening to his records a lot closer. And then that's when the change came and he started to read his, the very next rehearsal. He came up to me and whispered in my ear. He said, that's what I'm talking about. That's all so, I need to say. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. He's not the guy you, you sit at the, the bar with and, you know, cheer a beer and, you know, talk about, <laughs> talk about your feelings and things like that. No. I, I don't get it. You heard my feelings, Prince. You shouldn't have kicked me. You hurt me. No, wasn't even. He didn't care about none of that. He'll fight you. Yeah, this little dude would fight you. <laughs> well, the, the unique thing about your playing is usually with bass players, it's bass and drums together. But it seems like it was bass and keyboards, possibly with you. Is that like you and Matt? Well, I, I started as a drummer, so oh, yeah. I had a very rhythmic style to my bass playing. And I think that's one of the things that locked in with Prince because his style was very rhythmic, you know, his bass, his bass yeah. style. And I like what Questlove said. Questlove said, uh, you're, you're a ghost noter. You, you, you play ghost notes. And I didn't really understand that until later on in years. And I started to, you know, now that Questlove said that, it's like I look back and I'm like, yeah, that is what it was, is ghost noting. I learned how to put rhythmic patterns with my bass playing that made it a little different, you know. And then Prince was like notorious at it. When he started showing me how he played bass, I was like, whoa, you know. And so I would start absorbing everything that he knew like a sponge. And then I would mimic when he would – uh want a certain groove, I automatically knew what he was looking for because I studied his brain and I studied his approach to the bass guitar. And I would hit it just like him. He, he turned around to look at me on the mic, you know, and I knew I had the poop. So, yeah. So the band gets together and you, and you got your, your first big gig. You're off to <laughs> Los Angeles and you're playing your big show, opening for the Rolling Stones, and everything is goes perfectly well. Is that, uh, is that the way it <laughs> Yeah, it went great. We were successfully ever after. No, no, that was a disaster. You know, that show was an absolute disaster. Uh, to me, it was. Uh, I got hit with chicken. I'm dodging bottles. and My bass got attacked by a grapefruit and got stuck in the keys and threw it all out of tune. It was dripping down the neck. and I mean, it was a disaster of a show. And it ended very quickly when Prince got hit with something. It looked like a silver dollar or something, like a quarter or something. And I just saw it coming and went ping. 
and it hit the ground, and that was it. He was gone. I turned around. The whole band was running after. They were running behind him. And I'm, I'm like on the stage, and I'm looking around. Like, I said, like, oh. <laughs> so I took my bass off, and I started running. You know? to, to, just to be clear, the, the, the backstory on this is this, this is when Prince, open, when you guys opened for the Rolling Stones Absolutely. at the, was this at the Rose Bowl? Los Angeles Coliseum. Coliseum, right. So it was like the yeah. Roman Coliseum, and we were like in the middle of the matches, the death matches. <laughs> yeah, I really don't understand because the Stones have had some great opening acts in the past. You know, I think Ike and Tina and this Stevie Wonder. I don't know what was it was. I mean, was it just they felt? You think fans felt threatened seeing someone dancing around in their underwear, or what was what was going around? What was your I personally think it's just the androgyny. It's like, you know, and I think it's just Rolling Stones fans. I mean, you got bikers and rockers out there, man. They didn't want to hear no sister and Bambi and, you know, why you want to treat me so bad. They want to hear some like, you know, they want to hear some grind. And uh, we get up there singing, you know, head. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, what the heck is he talking about? And then when he got to the song, Jack You Off, he says, you know, because he came up to us, all, he said, play Jack You Off next. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I remember saying, I was like, no, we cannot play that song. And Bobby, dude, went into the drum. Prince starts talking to the audience. This is what you do when you have your girl and you're at a drive-in theater. I was like, no, that's not what you do, you know? Jack you off, okay, that's what the girl's doing to the guy, so it makes it sound like you are doing it mm-hmm. to a guy. I said, it's not going to go over right. And I'm thinking this in my head, and sure enough, it was a massive explosion of anger. It was like, boom. Yeah, we saw F, you know, middle fingers coming up, and that's when the, the barrage of debris started really coming on the stage. So. <laughs> He was really, was he just looking to antagonize the audience at that point? No, I, I, really, I really think that he was that sheltered from that type of music. He just, you know, he, he knew Minnesota just like we did. You know, I mean, he, that was a whole, I mean, you're talking about the Rolling Stones. You're talking about rock and roll. This is a whole different thing than what we grew up in, you know, in the Twin City. We never saw nothing like that. And so... Yeah. I don't think, I think it caught him off guard. He didn't realize how that audience was going to respond. Me, I played a lot of uh, fairs, a lot of really, you know, biker type functions where, you know, we, we had to hide behind a cage, you know, they had to have the, the cage up. And, you know, I mean, so, I mean, I was more familiar with that playing in the local bar scenes than he was. Because yeah. Prince kind of, you know, right out of high school, he went straight to the, you know, he was headed up, uphill. Where me, I was still down there in the mire. So I got to, you know, see how a lot of things worked. And so when we got to the Rolling Stones, uh, I don't think Prince realized this is a different audience. You can't get up there talking about jack you off. You, you can't do that. It's not going to go over well. Crazy. Because when, when I think about the album Emotional Rescue, the Stones album, mm-hmm. that's Mick Jagger doing Prince. It really, I mean, it made, it, it, was a, it seemed like a good marriage. And I can understand why Prince had thought that this was a, this was a good, good move, but man. I think it could have been, uh, but I, I think, I, I just think he needed to be uh, forewarned 
what it was. And I think the set list should have been like really thought out. And, you know, Prince is the kind of guy, he's going to do it his way. You know, he's not going to let somebody tell him how he's going to run his set list and play his music. So this was 82, 81, 81. So it was probably still that we were on the cusp of being ready for Prince. Absolutely. That was like a precursor of what's coming through the back door. Because when he stepped back from the Rolling Stones tour, it actually saved him to me because he needed to reestablish himself in America because he remember he went to Europe for Dirty Mind. Mm-hmm. Then he came back. So controversy, he really needed to explain to his black audience what this is because there's going to be a crossover happening and he knew it. That was the plan in the first place. And he needed to really resonate that with his black audience before he transitioned into this mixed atmosphere that we were headed for. Because right uh, after Controversy in 1999 came on, I mean, we would go out and look at the audience. It was like, whoa, you know, I'm used to seeing all black people. You know, Roger Troutman opening up and, you know, it's just all black. Now it's like, whoa, it's all white, you know. (laughs) And then, you know, where's the black people? And they're way back there up in the bleachers, you know? So, and then we, then, then we really started to see the racism in, in connection with promotion and things like that. I was like, whoa, what is this? Because I remember even he was bothered by it, you know? Saw it instantly. It was like, whoa, wait a second. And so we, we found out that, you know, the better seats were being sold in the out in the suburbs and the inner city got the bum seats. And it's just the way it was. It's how the stuff was set up, you know? And so he brought in black promoters and things. And so he was really on top of things. Pretty Prince knew what was going on. He was very aware. He was very clever in the way that he strategically marketed himself, almost like James Brown did. Mm -hmm. Very clever. Did this Uh, come from him or did he have a lot of guidance in that that area? yeah, a lot of guys, lots. I mean, one, Bob Cavallo was just, that was an amazing guy. I mean, he's still around, but yeah. Bob Cavallo was, that was one smart dude. Uh, and then there was Joe Ruffalo and Steve Fargnoli. Steve, Steve Fargnoli was more the hands-on guy with Prince, but that, that Bob Cavallo, man, and Joe Ruffalo, behind the scenes, they really knew what they were doing back there. What was and their role? They were the managers. Okay. That was the management team that uh, uh, took on Prince. It was uh, Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Fargnoli management team. You know, so they were powerful. I, I was like, man, you got the mafia behind you. <laughs> and Rock Cavallo managed a lot of uh, rock acts. Every yeah. hit you see, I mean, his whole, his whole job, I mean, his whole um, roster, you know, or his resume is hits, 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 hits. Mm-hmm. He's no, taking groups to the height, you know, and... Uh, I went, you know, Green Day, I watched what he did with them. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. And so Prince was fortunate to be able to connect with such people, you know. And then with Prince's vision, their smarts, and Prince's knowledge about people like James Brown and how he broke those barriers, nothing was going to stop him. Okay, so we're right in the middle of our talk with Brown Mark, but we are going to stop as we do. And we will return next week on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Fun, Holly? You're having <laughs> yes, a- yes, we will be back next week because we are having a great talk with Brown Mark. Yes. 
make sure to check out his book. It's called My Life in the Purple Kingdom. You can check out What Difference Does It Make on our Facebook page, WDDIM Podcast, Twitter, Instagram. YouTube. You can check us out on YouTube. We're starting to, yeah, we're starting to uh, do things on YouTube. So check that out. Visual things. Yes. Um, (laughs) Sign up for our newsletter, WDDIMpodcast.com. So until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.